When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Michelle Lamont about seeing others, how recognition works, and how it can heal a divided world. Uh, So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, This is a fantastic book. Uh, It's a book that speaks you know, immediately and directly to contemporary debates, uh, both in America, actually, but but in various places across the world. It's also a book that I kind of got the sense almost kind of summarizes some major interventions you've already made, and I think tries to push uh, the field on as well. And I guess the place to start really is, is the sense of kind of why did you decide to write the book? What was, um, I guess, the kind of interest and motivation to write Seeing Others? Well, I think like many people during the uh, Trump presidency in the U.S., I felt quite uh, discouraged about basically history going backward, it seemed. And I was very interested in how uh, people get a sense of hope. So I started uh, uh, reading more on uh, future projection, how people come to imagine the future differently. Uh, This really interesting literature on, uh, you know, intersubjectivity that has been exploding in the last few years in my field, cultural sociology but also in economic sociology. So I got very interested in the production of new narratives and the the role of what I call change agents in putting out their new ideas about how to move forward. So that was really the main uh, motivation. Also, the book has a chapter on Gen Zs, people born after Uh, 1997 coming of age during the pandemic. I happen to have a few children who are in that group age. So I was also very interested in how this age group thinks about the future, given that the uh, American dream doesn't seem to be delivering for them. So where do they find their alternative sources of hope? So that was the motivation, really. I mean, you've already thrown out a couple of key themes that I'm going to pick up on and, and, and maybe sort of get you to unpack a bit. But one of the kind of key things is is kind of in the title. Um, it's not just, I suppose, a, a set of um, or a list of social ills that you're grappling with the book, but you've also got this idea that we can, you know, basically kind of make the world a better place. And it's through this concept, uh, I guess, maybe we'll call it that, um, this this idea um, of recognition. Um, and it'd be really kind of useful, I guess, to get a sketch of what recognition is, how you're using the term, uh, and why you think it's such an important idea. Mm-hmm. It's a concept that has been developed over the last decades by uh, philosophers, mostly Nancy Fraser and Axel Hanet. And it's really about uh, acknowledging or recognizing the worth of groups that have been uh Uh, neglected. Of course, the origin is Engels and the the dialectic between master and slave. But this 
approaches are not empirical. So I became very interested in developing an empirically based approach to studying recognition processes. And by recognition, uh, I mean what I just said, which is really the process of making people worthy, of uh, giving them a sense that they matter in the community in which they live, that they have full membership. And that's partly important now because so much is being written on minoritized group and on their stigmatization and how to overcome it. So in my past scholarship, I've really tried to contribute to, uh, to this. So the word recognition may be confusing for the large public because, you know, we say, oh, I recognize that this is Joe on the street, or I recognize that this is an apple on the table. Well, that's not the meaning that I'm using it here. It's really much more in terms of how we produce community and how we, we maximize inclusion. That, that's really um, succinct and, and really, really clear. Um, but at the same time, I think recognition kind of crops up in, in lots of, um, I suppose, kind of analytical ways um, in the book. And, and one of the ways that you use this, and you mentioned the kind of empirical basis for this philosophical concept, is you've got lots and lots of um, change agents as you described in the book. And I was intrigued, actually, because sometimes in sociology, we might talk about, you know, um, maybe like activists, or we might talk about policymakers. Sometimes we might use a generic term like, I don't know, social actors or something like this. But you've got this kind of idea of change agents. And I was intrigued, um, partially like what's going on there, but also sort of who are they as well? Yeah, well, um, as I started working on the book, I was very intrigued by a number of uh, shows, uh, series that were being diffused on Netflix and elsewhere that were really providing alternative visions of stigmatized group. So one of the interesting shows is Transparent, which, you know, uh, features a, a, a middle-aged uh, woman who's trans, and um, it the, the, the series really humanizes her and as she is uh, negotiating her new identity with her adult children. So that's an example. So in the context of the book, we ended up doing 75 interviews with uh, Hollywood professionals and stand-up comics. And in the majority of the cases, they really orient their work toward uh, producing and scaling up uh, different um uh, narratives about groups that have been uh, historically marginalized. So a lot of our interviews is about how they think about the place of such objectives in their in their life, in their professional life. Um, but we also interviewed people who are advocates for different kinds of groups. So one example would be someone named Desmond Mead, who is a formerly incarcerated man uh, from Florida who has been leading a major campaign uh, to uh, give back to a formerly incarcerated people their right to vote. So it's really the politics of incarceration. People who've been incarcerated in Florida are not allowed to vote. Um, so, um, you know, that's another example. But I also did interviews with my research team with uh, people who are central to philanthropies that are uh, subsidizing uh, the work of uh, all kinds of organization to uh, to maximize their impact, to scale up their messages. So one of them is um, leader of a philanthropy that gave a lot of uh, funds to Black Lives Matter during 2020. The project, the interview started in the fall of 
2019. And uh, we went back and we interviewed a number of people after uh, tw- the summer of 2020, Black Lives Matter. So that's also part of the story. And since we also um, interviewed a lot of Gen Zs uh, before the pandemic, we, re- we went back to them. Uh, so if you want the overall architecture of the book is really these 185 interviews with change agents plus the 80 Gen Zs from the Midwest and the East Coast who are college students. And both of these groups, I understand them as producers of alternative narratives. And uh, the interviews focus on how they understand the society we live in, what are the challenges, but what kind of world would they want to live in and what do they do to create it? So we really focus on the... uh, uh, the progressive liberal uh, end of the political spectrum, uh, the uh, the right wing conservatives are not part of the story in part because there's a lot of recent books that are on these groups. But I think of them as change agents because they are creating new, new narratives or they are helping to scale them up. I mean, the thing about uh, creating new narratives is, is, I guess, kind of part of the um, solution um, to the problem the book uh, is trying to identify and you know change agents suggest that something needs to change and the thing the book does kind of uh, i think in, in quite a lot of detail at the front end across really a, a couple of chapters not not just the introduction is lay out what the issue is and, and i guess um, we might unpack this in, in two ways one is i guess what's the problem that's happened to the top of society both actually in the us but there are implications globally and then what's happened to the bottom half um, of society again kind of in the US and more globally how do the uh, top and, and bottom uh, parts of society tell us what the problem is we need to change yes yeah, so for the top of the society I mean the first two chapters of the book after the intro are kind of you know depressing chapters because it describes a world where um, you know professionals and managers college college-educated people have really um, now have come to incarnate the ideal self that is celebrated under neoliberalism with a focus on uh, competitiveness, entrepreneurship, material success, and um, at the same time as the American dream uh, has become unattainable for the vast majority of of people, certainly those in the lower half of the the social ladder. So, um, you know, it's those chapters are very much framed in the context of neoliberalism and this hegemony of the neoliberal scripts of self and how it is also promoted by the media, where we see very few uh, inspiring depictions of the working class at the present time. So this feeds also a growing alienation of the working class and the uh, uh, you know, problem with mental health that have been widely documented, not only in the lower half, but also at the top, because professionals and managers are suffering from uh, anxiety and also feeling overwhelmed since they are on this treadmill, uh, which is also called the hedonistic treadmill because it's just focused on consumption and it's endless and people never find a sense of satisfaction despite their uh, the great stress 
that they experience in this pursuit of upward mobility. So uh, it connects the, the second chapter, which is on the uh, uh, lower half, here connects with Death by Despair, uh, the influential book by uh, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, explaining how um, the despair of this group is very much also tied to the hegemony of the uh, neoliberal scripts of self. And it makes the, those two chapters together really make the case for, uh, you know, putting out their new scripts of what a good society would look like um, that is absolutely needed at this time. So, I mean, that kind of crucial point is, is the what are the new scripts? And, and the book, as, as you've already mentioned, kind of unpacks that with a variety of different uh, bits of fieldwork and in different social settings. Um, and I guess the, the first way the book does that, and, and again, you, you sort of alluded to this, is it gives this sense that kind of artistic practice, media, contemporary culture can help us to, I suppose, kind of change the story, change the, um, the narrative. And I wonder if you could give a couple of examples of how we can kind of change narratives about both kind of who matters in terms of, say, as you've mentioned, you know, depictions of trans people, depictions of the working class, but also, I guess, kind of challenge who matters in terms of getting um, maybe social elites to be, you know, less depressed, and less kind of, yeah, sort of, as you say, on that kind of hedonistic treadmill. Yes. Um, well, the way cultural change operates, I argue, is really through the transformation of narratives. And there's a couple of chapters that focus on this and explain I focus on various cultural producers whose work is very much centered on this. And I take the case of these um, Hollywood professionals who are creating new narratives about uh, LBGTQ uh, people uh, and African-Americans. And as uh, my uh, research assistant and I interviewed them, they really emphasize their desire to... um, represent or depict these groups in the way that they would like to be depicted uh, in a much more three-dimensional way, away from the stereotypes. And also they use terms such as um, one in particular, Catherine Opie, who is a... um, a photographer who specializes in uh, depicting, you know, queer populations, and she's uh, in, uh, into the SNM culture herself, and she covers the leather uh, community in uh, in LA, and she explains, you know, I really wanted to depict them the way that they want to see themselves, you know, people who have dignity, uh, people who are noble. She uses the word noble. So these themes come back all the time in the literature, away from stereotype, three dimensional, more complex, more humane, etc. So that operates across the board. And that leads me, leads me to argue that a lot of the new narratives are about inclusion. You know, many people engage in the EI and in the defense of inclusion in our society, but I don't think many people think of it as an, an alternative to the American dream, which is uh, the argument of the book. This focus on both inclusion, but also authenticity, which is partly important for Gen Zs because they keep talking about, you know, bringing their best self and they want to have... Um, you know, work-life balance. They have an idea about what a good life is that is very much about being authentically themselves and not having to to constrain how they present themselves to uh, social norms. 
Um, so that's how change happened, and that's how they contribute to it. But the analysis goes further because I propose this concept of, of recognition chain, which is really about collaboration between groups that are involved in different sectors of society and that are all pushing for for same agenda of inclusion, and they are re- reinforcing each other. So I talk not only about artists such as Catherine Opie, but also about the galleries that feature the work of people like her in a museum and the critics that discuss. There's a wonderful critic who happens to be my colleague here at Harvard, Sarah Lewis, who's been writing about the uh, Black photographers as a group. You know, she's in the the arts and archaeology department here. So this concept of uh, you being a cultural sociologist, you'll be familiar with uh, the concept of art world and Howie Becker. I think it's very much the same thing. Howie Becker, Howard Becker, who passed away very recently, proposes that uh, collaboration in art worlds really is based on sharing conventions. Well, this notion of uh, recognition chains operate very similarly with the same focus on uh, putting out their narratives that kind of have the same effect on a social belonging. I mean, that sense of uh, whether it's worlds or, or recognition chains is, is really important um, to this um, hopeful narrative that the book um, is establishing. And I wonder, I guess, um, not a criticism, but, you know, some people might say of the book, well, you've, you know, you spent a lot of time on um, kind of cultural narratives, artistic narratives, but what about, say, you know, social change in terms of politics or, or social policy? And I think one of the things the book does really well is uh, partially through the change makers, but partially through its theoretical contribution is it weaves together um, a sense of uh, whether it's, you know, charities or, or whether it's political change going on. And I wonder if you could give maybe a couple of examples or a kind of flavor of the book, how it goes beyond um, just the kind of artistic sure. or media work. So one person I interviewed who really impressed me is a guy named Rashad Robinson, who is the head of an organization called Color of Change. And it's an organization that promotes, if you want, the political impact of African-American It's a large and important philanthropy, and they have been mobilizing um, African-Americans across the country to, for instance, put on the ballot uh, in places where prosecutors are elected, as is the case in Chicago, uh, progressive African-Americans who um, will try to, instead of simply, you know, give larger budget to the police or incarcerate many people think in terms of uh, how to address the social problems um, and how, for instance, to put more money in uh, social workers or in psychological support for for people who have mental health problems or people who are, who are addicted to drugs. So it's really part of a much broader analysis of the social problems that plague urban America. And that's really their agenda. And they do it by organizing, um, you know, evenings or telethons, you know, where very large group of young African-Americans will get together to to call and to get pe- get the vote out, you know. So he was he was a particularly inspiring person. Um, and, uh, th- you know, of course, uh, there's a large and critical literature on philanthropies. You know, you can think of the Gates of Mark Zuckerman. The list is very long. Uh, but the Ford Foundation is one that I feature in the book, and the current um, 
president, Darren Walker, has committed. He's been there for more than a dozen years. And from the beginning, he committed to uh, fighting inequality as the main objective of his presidency. And in order to do this, there's four pillars on which the organization focuses. And one of them is changing arts and mind. So instead of, you know, many um, philanthropies simply focus on economic change or policies, in contrast, it was very focused on transforming uh, narratives and they put a lot of funding into, for instance, the production of films such as the film Roma, which features uh, indigenous uh, domestic workers who one of them is, you know, considering having an abortion. And you release the focus of the film is her her personal drama as opposed to, um, you know, having domestic workers in the background, which is typically the case. And but, you know, the point here is that the Ford Foundation, like many other foundations, are often criticized for their role in disciplining social movements and in imposing on organizations all kinds of, you know, bureaucratic rules that slows down their action and that forces them to operate within more like mainstream paradigm. So I'm not criticizing these. Uh, I, I agree with a lot of these critics, criticism, but I, the book also very much point out, points out how a lot of foundations are really crucial in scaling up efforts and in scaling up narratives. Narratives diffuse much more broadly and, you know, really affects what people take for granted, what becomes part of our background as we operate in society by uh, having the means simply of diffusing. The, the example of Roma, for instance, this film, which was subsidized by uh, Ford and also benefited from the support of the National Union of Domestic Workers, which is, a, you know, union of uh, very low-income employees who've always suffered from a lot of uh, insecurity. Well, this was diffused by Netflix, and it was viewed by a very large number of people. And I interviewed the person who was then in 1980 in charge of uh, defining the programmation for Netflix at the world level, at the global level. And, you know, she was pushing, you know, films such as Black Panther, you know, a lot of important productions that really contribute to transforming uh, how we represent groups. So I could go on and on. The, I also interviewed uh, one of the vice president of uh, for research at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that has been pushing a large initiative on culture of change, which is also about producing solidarity. So these are a few examples. I mean, they're incredible and so sort of rich and, and inspiring. And I was going to say the second half of the book, but you know the the analysis runs throughout the book. But uh, there's a specific attention, and you've kind of mentioned this to uh, to Gen uh, Z or Gen Z, uh, as you'd say over there. Um, I was fascinated because the, the analysis isn't you know a simplistic uh, sort of well, you know, young people are the future and things will get better. You really try and tease out the way that um, they have to negotiate. I suppose, kind of neoliberal individual values that they hold and that, you know, they're um, committed to this idea of kind of extending uh, recognition, both themselves, but also for excluded groups. And and, and I'm really sort of um, fascinated by, I suppose, the kind of the tension and the negotiation between what we might think of as kind of neoliberal individual values and then pro-recognition values. Mm -hmm. 
Well, the way we, this is a part of the study that I did with two of my graduate students. You know, of course, given the tensions today between boomers and Gen Zs, I couldn't do these interviews myself. So I benefited from the involvement of two wonderful graduate students, Shira Zilberstein and Marie Sanchez. And we co-authored a couple of papers that really look more deeply into that data than we could um, I could in the book, but um, the argument is really that these uh, Gen Zs are braiding various cultural repertoires together. It's not that they reject work or they reject neoliberalism entirely. They don't believe that they will be able to buy a house or they don't invest in just getting richer. Most of the people we interviewed, although there are class differences, which I could discuss, but in fact, they are like combining, they really value entrepreneurship and hard work. They know that you have to take your life in your hand and, you know, deploy energy. They like those ideas, but they really, as I said earlier, value the work uh, life balance and their mental health is very important to them. I'm a boomer. I can tell you my generation, uh, people worked really hard without necessarily uh, putting much emphasis on um, on mental health. Uh, the discourse for the therapeutic culture was much less widely spread then than it is now. And, uh, you know, with this, it combined with what I call in the book, uh, ordinary cosmopolitanism, ordinary universalism, the notion that we're all human beings, that there's a lot that we all share, you know, um, and uh, also their political involvement is really crucial to them. So a lot of demographers have been very critical of this concept of Gen Zs, and we share a lot of the criticism. We argue, we agree that it's impossible to disentangle um, uh, age effect and cohort effect and period effect. That's a well-known argument in sociology or in demography. But we also argue that since this group very much uses the term Gen Z to define themselves and they have a strong positive identification with this term, we it's an intersubjective reality. They define their identity as Gen Zs, and therefore it's legitimate to use it as such. And this identity has to do with politics and with, you know, being more inclusive and wanting a different world that also puts a lot of emphasis on, you know, fighting against climate change, which was not, they, they think they're the first generation in the world that creates social change, which is, of course, uh, delusional, you know, and they don't see the extent to which my generation, the boomers, also fought for, uh, you know, change in gender relationships of course the the you know second wave feminism a lot of the the things that people were fighting for then uh, gen z's are taking for granted but of course my generation we didn't fight for pronouns and for non-binary uh, identities and uh, influence on gender uh, neutral toilets for instance but uh, what it means to be progressive has changed a lot across generation but um, one of the claims I make in the book is there's really a need for a greater awareness among Gen Z's for the potential of cross-generational alliances. I mean, at the same time, you, you sort of touched on uh, the kind of continuing uh, issue of social class. And I have to admit, as a British reader, obviously, as soon as, you know, kind of social class mentions, my kind of eyes light up as a, as a concept that uh, the British are sort of deeply uh, engaged with both, you know, sociologically and, and in terms of lived reality. But I think it, it is important that we um, maybe, if not kind of challenge, uh, I, I suppose, some of the things that um, Gen Z would like to sort of say about itself or the story. But 
I guess, kind of both remind readers, remind listeners that, you know, issues of inequality are still really kind of important uh, for Gen Z. So what's going on with the kind of uh, social class story? Yeah, well, one of the papers I co-authored with Mary and Shira goes in much greater depth in this. And we argue that um, one of the big differences you know, of the 80 Gen Zs we interviewed, half of them are from less privileged background. Parents are not college educated and the other one is more privileged. The privileged one really want to think of themselves as playing a leading role in social transformation. Whereas the second group, uh, the less privileged, uh, they tell us, well, I, during the pandemic, I had to help my parents pay their bills, you know. So I could not be on the barricades all the time. And the their understanding of the crisis is there's always been a crisis. And with COVID, the crisis is simply uh, deepened. So they are deeply aware of the constraint that they face, and that really affects them te- their temporal orientation. So whereas the, uh, the uh, upper middle class kids have a view of their agency as much more powerful than the working class kids, but they also view their capacity to transform the world as functioning on the long term, whereas uh, the working class kids are much more aware of the ways in which their action is constrained by resources. That's one aspect. The other aspect is the middle class kids uh, think it's very important to be kind and they downplay social conflict, um, whereas the working class kids uh, are much more likely to say, yes, Sometimes you need real conflict, real confrontation. That's partly the case in the context of Black Lives Matter. So uh, there's a kind of uh, impatience with uh, uh, mostly emphasizing, you know, we all should all be kind and get along and uh, that this is not sufficient to create the social change that is needed. We've covered, I mean, so much, um, and, and the book, as I say, is is incredibly uh, sort of rich and, and really does bring together so much uh, material. But I suppose what we've talked about really are, are these kind of uh, US uh, examples. And I, I'd said a few times, I, I think the book uh, speaks, you know, much more kind of globally and, and much uh, more, you know, sort of beyond the, 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 the United States context. And, and I'm wondering if you could sort of distill in some way, the kind of uh, lessons or um, ideas, you know, you know do, does this kind of sense that uh, recognition can function um, in, in other societies beyond the States? Is, is there a kind of global uh, insight about recognition that the book puts yeah. forward? Sure. Well, we know that you know, the U.S. is not the only neoliberal country in the world. Uh, one of my colleagues here uh, in Boston, Jonathan Meisch, did a wonderful paper showing how it gained in popularity in most advanced industrial societies over the last decades and where it gained most in popularity is in the U.S. and the U.K. So I think a lot of what I write in the book about the hegemony of the neoliberal scripts of self uh, holds for the UK as well, although the mental health crisis epidemics is much less deep in the UK than it is um, in the US. Uh, but uh, the uh, you know we know that DEI policies are really spreading rapidly across the world. Some of that is isomorphism, but we know that Black Lives Matter led to major protests in countries such as France that is are still struggling with uh, acknowledging the centrality of racism or even of settler colonialism in their own or or colonialism and imperialism to court in their own. Uh, 
history. So I think the, the changes that I uh, describe in the book uh, are also happening uh, uh, in many other contexts. And the penultimate chapter is really about what can we do to accelerate change and what can citizens do? And I explain the role of the law and the role of the states, you know, really how various um types of institution in society are contributing to social change. And, um, you know, I discuss notions of solidarity and how they exist differently across context. And I cite the work of a psychologist at Michigan who has been studying um, janitors who work across a number of universities across the world. And he gives an example of uh, women who work uh, in the student's dorm in Malaysia who are really uh, working on presenting themselves to students at good, as good old aunties who will give them advice on their diet and their sleep and their health, as opposed to simply being the people who, who empty their garbage can and clean their toilets. So the the struggle of, you know, how do we frame our interactions as human beings uh, through neoliberal scripts where, you know, institu- instru- uh, instrumental relationships are at the center of everything versus types of relationships which allow us to connect more as human beings. And I think that there's a longer for this across the world, uh, across generations as well. I have a, a graduate students who's studying precarious uh, college-educated young people in Spain, and are, you know what they aspire to is also in part uh, solidarity. You know, and I can't go on, you know, the Arab Spring crisis, the... Um, you know, the the evidence that we have for this uh, hunger of a different and more inclusive world across societies is very powerful. So I think the book can help show the way for social change in a great many more contexts than the United States. I mean, given how much I've said about um, the richness and the kind of comprehensiveness uh, of the book, it, it seems slightly uh, kind of mean to ask you, so what are you doing next? (laughs) Yeah, no, actually, I'm in the process of developing a new project, which would be on exactly connecting to your last question, um, you know, dignity and recognition globally. And it would be a number of uh, paired uh, case studies, Uh, one um, comparing workers in the U.S. and the U.K., maybe, you know, Manchester, New Hampshire and Manchester, uh, U.K. So it's a project that I'm now uh, developing with some colleagues in uh, Manchester, uh, Andrew Miles in particular, who I believe you know. And the idea is really to focus on the non-college educated in a context where, you know, the, the... the success of Manchester UK was very much tied to industrial revolution. Same thing in Manchester, New Hampshire, but in both cases, these are communities that have experienced uh, desindustrialization and decline and the question of how they have reinvented themselves through the knowledge economy. So that would be one case study and there would be another one related to uh, environmental justice and recognition, and probably a third one on how do people make claim for recognition in the context of, uh, you know, AI workplace dominated by AI, where evaluation is done, not by human beings, where we can give each other recognition, but by machines. So how do we create communities in, um, you know, these places that are where humans are largely removed from the work process. So that's what I'm in the process of developing. And I'm really excited about this new, um, 
these new projects. So maybe it will bring me to the UK for a part of the year next year.